The scripture passage that we'll be considering this evening is taken from Micah chapter 3. Uh, We'll be focusing especially upon the prophetic oracle that is contained in verses 9 through 12. For context's sake, we'll read the chapter in its entirety. In your pew Bible, you can find this section on page 1072. We'll be reading Micah 3 and we'll be focusing the words of our text especially upon verses 9 through 12. Here now together the reading of the word of God. And I said, hear now, O heads of Jacob, and you rulers of the house of Israel, is it not for you to know justice, you who hate good and love evil, who strip the skin from my people and the flesh from their bones, who also eat the flesh of my people, flay their skin from them, break their bones and chop them in pieces, like meat for the pot, like flesh in the cauldron. Then they will cry to the Lord, but he will not hear them. He will even hide his face from them at that time, because they have been evil in their deeds. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets, who make my people stray, who chant peace while they chew with their teeth, but who prepare war against him who puts nothing into their mouths. Therefore you shall have night without vision, and you shall have darkness without divination. The sun shall go down on the prophets, and the day shall be dark for them. So the seers shall be ashamed and the diviners abashed. Indeed, they shall all cover their lips, for there is no answer from God. But truly I am full of power by the Spirit of the Lord and of justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. And then the words of our text, Now hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, who abhor justice and pervert all equity who build up Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with iniquity. Her heads judge for a bribe, her priests teach for pay, and her prophets divine for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord among us? No harm can come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed like a field. Jerusalem shall become heaps of ruins, and the mountain of the temple like the bare hills of the forest. Thus far this evening, our reading from the Word of God. Our congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, we come as we continue this series through the book of Micah this evening to another difficult prophetic oracle. And I thought to myself this week, haven't we heard enough of these types of prophetic oracles? Well, I think it's always dangerous to argue with the structure of Scripture, Uh, not necessarily the verse divisions or the chapter divisions, but the structure that oracle follows after oracle. Uh, This is, of course, given by divine inspiration, and these words are given by divine inspiration, and therefore they are profitable as we consider them together. Uh, And the main purpose of these prophetic oracles, of these strong blasts, you might say, that the prophet Micah is presenting to the covenant people, is that these strong words were to produce a humbling effect within the covenant community, within the church of the Lord Jesus Christ as she found herself in the Old Testament dispensation. And I do believe it is certainly profitable for us to walk slowly through these prophetic oracles. Uh, And so we would encourage you this evening to keep your Bibles uh, ready as we'll be cross-referencing a few uh, passages, one of them more lengthy. And and we cross-reference passages because one of the basic rules, one of the most safe guards that you can have to make sure that we are rightly interpreting the Bible is to use other passages of Scripture. 
Uh, one of the basic hermeneutical rules that you learn in seminary for interpreting Scripture is to use other passages to shed light uh, into the passage you are considering. Uh, and the way we interpret a certain passage must agree with the other passages in Scripture because of this idea that there is an organic unity within the Bible as a result of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so we hopefully, by God's help, walk through this prophetic oracle as we find it in Micah 3, verses 9 through 12, using other scriptural passages to illuminate what the Lord God is speaking to us as a congregation uh, through His Word as found in Micah. Our theme for this evening is that the Lord condemns Israel's leaders for injustice. As we unfold that theme, we'll notice, first of all, the presented complaint, and then secondly, the presumptuous boast, and then thirdly, the promised judgment. So the Lord speaks once again through His prophet, and He condemns Israel's leaders, those persons in positions of prominence. He condemns them because they were guilty of injustice. Injustice, especially as they dealt with their fellow man in this covenant community. Well, notice, first of all, the presented complaint, secondly, the presumptuous boast, and then thirdly, the promised judgment. So first of all, and we'll be somewhat brief on this first point, we're going to be spending the majority of our time in the second and the third point. Uh, the presented complaint is given by the Lord against the leaders of Israel. And let me just simply pause to say that not all of the members of Israel were leaders in Israel. God has his sovereign purposes, and God has his plans, and so he appoints some persons to positions of leadership. He does this in his own sovereignty. And the same is true in the church today. Some individuals are given the solemn responsibility of an office, of a position of leadership, of a position of prominence and of influence. And with that position comes, you might say, a greater responsibility. A greater responsibility, so much so that James says that not many of us should become teachers because we'll be held to a higher standard of judgment a higher level, you might say, of scrutiny. And the Lord now, you might say, is stirred in righteous indignation, not just because of the sin of the average person in Israel, but he's especially stirred to anger because of the offensive sin that the leaders in the church were committing as they dealt with their fellow man. And so you will be reminded that the Lord in the New Testament, especially through the Apostle Paul, gives all sorts of criteria for the one who would be an office bearer. You can read through Titus, and you can read through Timothy, and you can read also through the Acts of the Apostles when they were called upon to appoint men to uh, perhaps the office of deacon in Acts 6, uh, perhaps those who were also appointed elders in the various cities. And you can see that there is this certain heightened expectation of the moral character of an individual who will be a leader within the covenant community. But sadly, uh, this morality was not being realized by the leaders uh, in the covenant community uh, of Israel. Uh, and so you can think of what Isaiah, uh, in many ways a contemporary uh, of Micah, says in Isaiah 5 verse 23. He has the same complaint because he's serving the same Lord. Uh, and the Lord is issuing this complaint through both Micah and through both Isaiah. So in Isaiah 5 verse 20, Isaiah proclaims, Woe to those who justify the wicked for a bribe, and take away justice from the righteous man. 
And so as we've seen in recent weeks, we just simply stated in summary fashion uh, again this evening, that the basic complaint, the basic accusation was that the leaders of Israel uh, were being guilty of an attitude of greed and then actions of social injustice that flowed out of that attitude of greed. And out of that attitude of greed, there came drastic expressions of oppression. I want to be careful here because this is subject to be misunderstood. This is subject to be misunderstood in a way that we think, well, anyone who's ever been in a position of leadership who has done something that I am not completely in agreement with is guilty of oppressing me. That is not the complaint. The complaint that the Lord has against the leaders in Israel is that they were guilty of radical oppressive sins out of greed. Now, to illustrate that, uh, I want to read a lengthy section from 1 Kings 21. Uh, now, I well understand that this passage occurred some time before the ministry uh, of Micah, uh, but the activities that is described in 1 Kings 21 uh, is the type of activity that Micah is speaking against. Now, many of you, if you're uh, a bit older, you know this story very well, but I want to read it in its entirety to remind us of the details, but also so that the next generation, uh, the boys and the girls and the young people also come to know these events. Uh, the story is that of Naboth and his vineyard. I just simply begin reading in 1 Kings 21 verse 1, and then we're going to continue all the way through 16, and this is the illustration of the complaint that the Lord had against the leaders of Israel. And it came to pass after these things that Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard which was in Jezreel, next to the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. So Ahab spoke to Naboth, saying, Give me your vineyard, that I may have it for a vegetable garden, because it is near next to my house, and for it I will give you a vineyard better than it. Or if it seems good to you, I will give you its worth in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers to you. So Ahab went into his house sullen and displeased, because of the word which Naboth the Jezreelite had spoken to him. For he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And then just notice the character and the conduct of the king. And he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and would eat no food. Boys and girls, he was pouting like a spoiled little child. And I hope you don't do that. But if you do do that, I would dare say your mother or your father would come to you and say, knock it off. Cut it out. Well, we'll see what happens. His wife comes, verse 5, but Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said, Why is your spirit so sullen that you eat no food? He said to her, Because I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite and said to him, Give me your vineyard for money, or else if it pleases you, I will give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. Then Jezebel, his wife, said to him, You now exercise authority over Israel. Arise, eat food, and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. And she wrote letters in Ahab's name, sealed them with his seal, and sent the letters to the elders and the nobles who were dwelling in the city with Naboth. She wrote in the letters saying, Proclaim a fast and seat Naboth with high honor among the peoples, and seat two men scoundrels before him to bear witness against him, saying, You have blasphemed God and the king. Then take him out and stone him that he may die. So the men of the city, the elders and nobles, who were the inhabitants of his city, did as Jezebel had said to them. 
And as it was written in the letters which she had sent to them, they proclaimed a fast and seated Naboth with high honor among the people. And two men, scoundrels, came in and sat before him. And the scoundrels witnessed against him, against Naboth, in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth has blasphemed God and the king. We just interject that no such thing had happened. These men bore false testimony. Justice had been perverted. Then they took him outside the city, that is Naboth, and stoned him with stones that he died. Then they sent to Jezebel, saying, Naboth has been stoned and is dead. And it came to pass when Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, that Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give to you for money. For Naboth is not alive, but dead. So it was when Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, that Ahab got up and went down to take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. Do you understand why the Lord is stirred to holy anger? He has a complaint. He has a very specific complaint. Injustice prevails among the leadership. And so he speaks and he condemns. Another point of application as we transition into our second point, let us be very, very careful how we interact with our fellow man or our fellow human being. Do you speak a little bit more politically correct? The Lord watches, and the Lord evaluates. Every Sunday morning, for the most part, with a few exceptions, we summarize the Ten Commandments as Jesus Christ summarized them. And we basically have two main responsibilities, two main duties. First and foremost, to love the Lord our God with all of our being. And then secondly, to love our fellow man as we love ourselves. So let us just evaluate how we interact with our fellow man. And let us be very careful that when we interact with our fellow man, we always do so loving justice, loving also mercy, and doing that which is good and that which is right. Because that was not being done in the days of Micah. And yet there was this presumptuous boast You'll notice, if you go back to the words of our text, uh, that what we're referring to here in our second point is found in verse 11. There's all sorts of injustice. Her heads judge for a bribe, her priests teach for pay, and her prophets divine for money. Now notice this presumptuous boast, yet they lean on the Lord. That is, they believe that they have a reliance upon the Lord, and they say, is not the Lord among us? I'll just stop there for a moment, and it's certainly true that the Lord was among them. The, the Lord is everywhere. The Lord is omnipresent. Psalm 139 speaks, where could we go and escape from his presence? And the answer is nowhere. If we make our bed in Sheol, he is there. If we take the, the wings of the morning, he is there. So on one hand, it's certainly true what these individuals are saying. Yes, the Lord is there, but they were speaking about the Lord's presence in his favor and in his grace. And they were then presuming no harm can come upon us. And this is the danger of the presumptuous boast. They thought they had deceived themselves that because they were the covenant people of God that they could live however they wanted to and that no ill would befall them. 
even if they had rejected the covenant obligations. They believed that they could continue to, to live the way that they were living. They could continue to uh, exercise all these types of social injustice, even within the church, and, and they just made themselves comfortable by saying, well, the Lord is among us. No ill can befall us. We're the chosen covenant community. And perhaps in their mind they said, and in fact, we are the leaders of the chosen covenant community. And congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, this confronts us with the reality of the error of this presumptuous boast that has long been, you might say, the Achilles tendon of covenant theology. Covenant theology, of course, is a biblical thing and a most beautiful thing and a most comforting thing when it's rightly understood as far as relates to its two aspects. Yes, indeed, God makes wonderful promises. He says, I will be your God and you will be my people. But in all covenants, there are contained two parts. And there also then is the call for faith and there is the need for the exercise of, of a holiness that flows out of that faith. Not, of course, to gain entrance into the covenant of God, but because we are in a covenant relationship with God. Uh, this type of covenant presumption was also seen, uh, you know, in the days of the judges uh, as battle raged against the Philistines. Uh, and as the battle was being lost, the Israelites came up with uh, this novel idea, well, let's bring out the Ark of the Covenant, because then, because we have this symbolic token, then no matter how we live, God is on our side and he will defeat our enemies. But they found out that day that it doesn't work that way. As the Ark fell into the hands of the Philistines and as many a person was slaughtered on the battlefield. Covenantal presumption is a most dangerous and a deadly error also in Reformed communities and Reformed churches. Uh, when you begin to presume that simply because we are in the external administration of the covenant of grace, when we presume that just because we have a baptized forehead and just because uh, we receive the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, therefore no ill can ever befall us. And when the mentality begins to, to creep in, and sometimes you even hear people express it along these lines, well, well, yes, let the young people do whatever they want. They're covenant children. They'll come back. That's the error of covenantal presumption. Or, you know, I, I know that this sin is in the church, but, but it's okay, we're the church. It's not okay because we're the church. You see, covenantal presumption flips it around. These leaders are saying, we can do whatever we want because we're the church. When it should have been, we're the church. We can't do whatever we want. We are bound by way of a solemn oath to present the entirety of ourselves to the Lord our God in part by dealing in an honorable way in a just way, in a loving way, with our fellow man. To boast of belonging to the Lord without sincerely believing and following the Lord, that's the most dangerous position to ever be in. Now in the New Testament, you find this also played out because who were the ones who took great pride in their identity in the New Testament era? Well, it was those Pharisees. They, they walked around town and 
pulled, you might say, at their, their suit coat lapels and said, why? We are the experts in the law. You name a passage of the Old Testament, we can tell you the interpretation. In fact, we can write volume after volume after volume dealing with the laws. You come to us with your theological questions. We're the ones who fast. We're the ones who tithe even more than we're supposed to. We're the ones who go through the daily prayers better than everyone else. And because we understand that our prayers are better than everyone else, why, we don't keep them in private, but we display them in public so that others might also see how righteous we are. By and large, did they know Jesus Christ? No. They boasted. And Jesus Christ said, you're nothing but a whitewashed sepulcher because of covenantal presumption. In contrast, you can think of the publicans and the sinners. And, and some of them, by God's electing grace, were those who embraced the promise of Jesus Christ and who found Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. They came in humility. And they reached out the hand of faith. And as they were healed, they were filled with an overwhelming sense of gratitude and thanksgiving. And they praised the name of Jesus Christ, and they made widely known who he was and what he had done. And so as we consider this dreadful statement, but this statement that sadly is far too common in covenant communities, is not the Lord among us. No harm can come upon us. If you find yourself saying that, while living in habitual sin, be forewarned. If you find yourself saying, is the Lord not on my side? What can happen to me? While you're continuing to live in a clearly known habitual sin, be warned that your boast is nothing, nothing but hypocritical. And so the Lord condemns Israel leaders for injustice, in large part because of this presumptuous boast. The Lord sees right through it, and he speaks a strong word of condemnation, and in that condemnation, he brings this promised judgment, and that's our third point. And here again, we just simply follow the text quite closely, you might say, verse 12, therefore, because of you, the therefore indicates that because of the preceding, because of this injustice, along with a presumptuous boast, therefore because of you, Zion shall be plowed like a field, Jerusalem shall become heaps of ruins, and the mountains of the temple like the bare hills of the forest. Now, there would have been a danger. The events that were going to happen with the exile and the devastation that was going to come upon Israel, many would ask, why has this happened? The Lord wants it to be perfectly clear. As these individuals were marching off into captivity, as they looked back, so to speak, upon what used to be uh, the glory of the Lord as he dwelt there in Jerusalem, as they now saw nothing but devastation, the question would have arose in their minds, why? And the Lord says, because of you. Because of those who practice social injustice while claiming that they are the ones who belong to the covenant. The Lord says judgment is going to come. I just simply want to state this evening with all clarity, there is a judgment that will come. We profess that every Sunday night. We believe that the Lord Jesus Christ will come again to judge uh, the living and the dead. 
And I always have to be careful because I want to say the quick and the dead because that's the way I learned it in my younger years. I think you revert back to how you learned it in your younger years. But the living and the dead, there will be a final judgment. You may say, well, why talk about that this evening? I talk about that this evening because, of course, the text forces us to talk about this if we're going to be faithful to the text, but also because so many deny this reality. Uh, the, The whole idea of materialism and of secularism is beginning to invade the church so so perhaps it's an outright denial some people say well there is no judgment to come that after death that's all there is others buy into the lie of annihilationism uh, that that with death the wicked just cease to exist Uh, others just don't think about the final judgment but there is a final judgment that will come in Jesus Christ, interestingly enough, in the recorded sermons, you might say, of Jesus Christ, spoke quite frequently about the final judgment. Uh, not to scare people, uh, not to be classified and be known in the community as a fire and brimstone preacher who preaches on judgment, but to communicate God's truth to God's people so that we might know that there is a judgment that will come and that we might then walk accordingly. Uh, by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, with the humble expressions uh, of obedience. And and notice, this is fully in line with what Galatians 6, verse 7 and 8 says, Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. And part of the reason why God continually reminds us that there is a judgment to come is also to remind us that the excuses that presumptuous sinners often give on that great day will be seen as just that, excuses. Because presumptuous sinners, they can, they can be experts in self-denial. Not the proper self-denial, uh, but, but they can convince themselves and what they're doing is okay. And what they're doing is justifiable. And that's why Galatians 6, verse 7 and 8 says, do not be deceived, don't be tricked, don't be mistaken. Don't deceive yourself and don't let others deceive you. There will indeed be a final judgment. Now the reaction to this was not to be that everyone would just simply cower in some type of ungodly fear, but rather the reaction to this proclamation was that the people of God would then imitate, you might say, the Ninevites. You remember Jonah, boys and girls, and you remember he was given a task to go preach to Nineveh. Interestingly enough, the connection between the Ninevites and those who would carry off uh, the Israelites into exile. But Jonah went there, and, and what was the message he proclaimed? I, I don't think Jonah would have been a real popular minister in Western world in the year 2022, because he walked through Nineveh, and he declared the judgment to come. You may say, well, well, why did the Lord send Jonah to Nineveh with this message? Well, Jonah knew why the Lord was sending him to Nineveh with this message, there's the judgment to come. Because Jonah knew the Lord was merciful. Now we might say, well, that doesn't sound, that doesn't sound right. If Jonah knew that the Lord was merciful and that the Lord was going to be merciful to Nineveh, why didn't Jonah just walk through Nineveh and say, the Lord is merciful, the Lord is merciful? Because Nineveh was still in sin. And they needed to be brought to repentance. 
And when Nineveh heard the proclamation of the coming judgment, then Nineveh fell down in repentance. And then the Lord displayed the reality of his mercy. And you see, that's what got Jonah so upset. The Lord's going to save Nineveh? And so Micah goes to the covenant community of Israel, and he says, judgment is going to come. But there's a merciful purpose in that proclamation, and that's also why we as a minister of the gospel, we proclaim the reality of judgments, that we might humble ourselves before the judgment comes and exercise ourselves continually in repentance, finding the forgiveness of our sins in and through the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to turn to one other passage, uh, this one much shorter, in Jeremiah 26, because there is evidence uh, that this did have its intended effect, at least to some extent. This proclamation uh, of the judgment to come in Jeremiah 26, verse 17, 18, and 19. Jeremiah 26, 17, 18, and 19. Then certain of the elders of the land rose up, that is, elders in the land of Israel, and spoke to all the assembly of the people, saying, Micah of Morsheth, prophesied in the days of Hezekiah, king of Judah. Notice the reference to our Micah. And spoke to all the people of Judah, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, and here was his sermon of judgment. Zion shall be plowed like a field. Jerusalem shall become heaps of ruins, and the mountain of the temple like the bare hills of the forest. Did Hezekiah, king of Judah, and all Judah ever put him to death? Did he not fear the Lord and seek the Lord's favor? And then notice these words. And the Lord relented concerning the doom which he had pronounced to give them. But we are doing great evil against ourselves. By way of closing application, first of all, I hope we all understand there is a solemn responsibility for the gospel minister to preach messages of judgment. But not just to end there, but to preach messages of judgment in the service of mercy. Micah walked through the land and said, this city's going to be plowed like a field, not in a favorable context. Why did he do that? Of course, because God had commissioned him to do that, but also because the Lord was going to relent concerning the doom which he had pronounced against them. Now, yes, Israel will go off into captivity, but even that, of course, has a saving purpose. Here in this time and in this age, gospel ministers must, must preach difficult sermons concerning the final judgment to produce humility in the hearts of the people of God in the service of the mercy of our God that we might hear these words, that we might humble ourselves, that we might cry out to the Lord Jesus Christ for grace and for mercy, and that then the Lord might relent towards us. May it be so within our own individual hearts that when we hear these sermons, we don't just simply walk out and think, oh, he must have really had something against somebody out there. The text was there, and it was straightforward. 
The sermon had to be preached. But we trust and we pray that it was preached a sermon on judgment in the service of mercy. That all of us might continually fall down and ask the Lord Jesus Christ for his grace and for his mercy. Amen. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you that you are a God who forbears long with us. And even when we are confronted with prophetic oracles of condemnation and judgment, we thank you that that is not a word in and of itself, but rather that it serves mercy to produce within our hearts uh, humility uh, that confesses the reality of our sins and looks for grace and for mercy in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we ask that these words might serve that end, and that even as you have promised that they would not return unto you void, but that they would accomplish your purposes to establish your kingdom and to advance uh, your glory throughout our congregation and throughout the ends of the world. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.